Well, hello and welcome to episode four of the FGen podcast. This is also going to be going out as the first podcast for Steph's Place. Uh, we decided to do a joint podcast because it's a very important topic. Today we will be talking about the EHRC and some of the revelations that have come to light recently. And on the podcast today, we have uh, Claire Prochot, who is involved with Steph's Place, and she is an investigator. We also have uh, Jane Fay, who is Transmedia Watch chair and a well-known writer. And my lovely uh, co-host, Violet, and myself, Victoria Hodges. Hey there, everyone. Yeah, welcome, everybody. Please say hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Thank you for coming. Um, so let's start, Claire. If you could kind of give us a bit of background into, you know, what this is all about, what's been going on, EHRC, what got your attention, and you know, we'll we'll kind of d- dive into some of the topics as we go. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Vicky. Um, I think probably like like many other people at the time, um, this kind of actually starts before the EHRC involvement if you will um it kind of all stem my, my interest stems back to the bell versus tavistock case and and when that was first announced and 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 what was uh, kind of going on there and like most of the community in the uk i'm guessing we followed it with interest um but when i started kind of looking at who was involved and and the figures involved um i started looking at those on the prosecution side that were trying to get trans healthcare revoked. And one of the names rang a bell and that was Alistair Henderson. And I couldn't think for the life of me where or why. And probably a couple of months or so. And I kind of made the connection that, that they worked at the, uh, the HRC as one of the commissioners on the, on the HRC's board. So that was kind of a curious connection. Let's just say. So just, just for the listener's benefit, um, Alistair Henderson, he's an EHRC commissioner. He's also a barrister. He, he, I think he became a commissioner in April 2018. So I believe these are four-year terms. His, his term may be coming to an end soon. I don't know. Yeah, I believe so. So, so yeah, so, so um, yeah, that kind of piqued my interest because you know, here we had someone who works for the UK's human rights body prosecuting a case alongside uh, someone who was known to uh, work against abortion rights on behalf of the, you know, the, the Christian right in the UK and, and, and beyond. Uh, and they seem to be working hand in hand and doing so to remove healthcare for trans people in the UK, which, as we know, being transgender reassignment is one of the protected characteristics. So that seemed to be a a fairly clear or, you know, indicate a conflict of interest. So I started just kind of putting notes and information together at that point, trying to find what I could find in terms of background, possible connections and and things like that. And, of course, that case uh, came to fruition, I think it was in December 2020, um, and around the same time as the the new chair was appointed, Baroness Kishwa Faulkner and again didn't make the connection there at the time but it was some point after that connection you know 
that I started looking at, okay, does this person have any particular sympathies? Um, didn't seem anything obvious, but, you know, like most other people probably, first thing I did was look at Twitter account and there were some curious names on there on the trans hostile side and not so much on the LGBT side uh, in terms of LGBT trans positive side. So it's like, okay, someone will need to kind of keep an eye on. And, and then I think it, it kind of jumps forward, you know, kind of in this, in this space, I was making notes, putting little bits of information together. What do I need to investigate? Putting a kind of a plan together as to, to what I needed to FOI. Just for any listeners that aren't aware, FOI means freedom of information. Is that correct? Yeah. So that just means that the official body. Yeah. So, so I was, I was kind of formulating a plan around this point. Uh, and then the, the first interview with the new chair came to light. And let's just say I was quite alarmed with the type of language used within that interview. It lined up pretty perfectly with all the same kind of language, terminology, phrasing that's used within the, the structural um, trans-hostile population group, uh, if you will, um, within the UK. Just to provide some other dates around some of this, Baroness Faulkner was appointed to um, chair in December 2020 by Liz Truss, yep. a political appointment, as, as we know. She was former policy director for Lib Dems, and she's also a member of the House of Lords, just yes. to give some background information on who she is. Yeah. You were talking about her first interview, I believe that was in May 2021, which was a few yeah. months after the EHRC had pulled out of Stonewall's um, diversity. Yeah, but at this point, we didn't know that, because I believe the first newspaper reporting of it didn't come out till about May, around the same time. So, you know, at this point, nobody within the LGBT community knew the HRC had actually pulled out Stonewall other than, I believe, Stonewall, because obviously they would have been informed. So, yeah, so that interview used a lot of language that, that rang alarm bells. So, again, started making notes, doing a bit of, bit of digging information. And, you know, it was that point I was like, I think I put my first FOI in around Henderson give you a quote of what was said in that first interview i have here some some notes around an interview that she did with the times in may 2021 and what she said was someone can believe that people who self-identify as a different sex are not the different sex that they self-identify as so you know that for me that is very transphobic oh it's it's, it's blatantly transphobic it really doesn't sound good it's it, it, you know it's in line with most of the dog whistles you hear about anti-trans rhetoric yeah it's very very clearly showing a a bias against transgender people yeah i believe so and yeah i mean that's 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 my opinion as well and, and no doubt that of the majority of of the trans community be very similar to the sort of maya force data kind of view doesn't it of um the gender critical belief being yeah um a um yeah a philosophical belief that we're not who we say we are <laughs> yes so um so yeah so you know as i said i think i that was around the time i kind of put my first fois in it was you know end of may beginning beginning of june and 
was thinking and talking to Steph at that time, actually, about what more we thought we'd need to do around that. Because, you know, at this point, it was kind of all a bit vague. And Steph had been doing a little bit of digging on her own as well and, and had picked up a couple of connections as well, um, like around and around David Goodhart, for example, and the Free Speech Union. So could you just, could you just explain who David Goodhart yeah, so yeah, sorry. Um, David Goodhart is another board commissioner who is um, who was appointed to the HRC. I, I can't remember exactly when, but it was a fairly recent appointment um, in line with, with Faulkner. I think it was not not long prior to Faulkner being appointed. Yeah, and I believe he's also, or he, or he may have been in the past, a top yeah. journalist. Yes, I, I believe he was a journalist. Um, he works for Policy Exchange, which is a so-called right-wing think tank, um, which also has uh, a number of on-record trans-hostile views on their website. So more alarm bells. Yeah, more alarm bells. And they're also a trustee, or I believe they still are, a trustee of the um, the newly formed at that time Free Speech Union, you know, the Toby Young Free Speech Union about so-called academic freedom, academic freedom of speech, which one of the things they were keen on looking at and prosecuting and, and kind of angling to deliver was protecting gender critical, in air quotes, um, academics to make sure that they could effectively, in my opinion, freely abuse transgender people. So are they, are they you know, when, when they're doing this, are they, are they trying to kind of hide behind free speech when they're, when they're kind of making these kind of statements? Yeah, my belief is, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of actually got it in the uh, in the documentation we put together. I'm just just scroll down and see if I can find it. But ah, here we go. Um, I think within the UK, there's generally not a definition of what academic speech is, but there's a really good definition in the Organisation of American History, uh, Historians. Um, that basically says that academic freedom only applies within the sphere of their area of study. So it's not a blanket catch-all. They can say what they like because they are an academic and therefore freedom of speech applies. It's a case of if it's a valid area of study within their area of study and an avenue of, of investigation, if you will, then academic freedom applies. But this group seems to want to apply freedom of speech to everything and everything be damned. So, yeah, I believe it's, it's kind of a shield and kind of a cover. Um, and we found with that, you know, this was basically exactly the same policy as the known hate group, the Alliance Defending Freedom, who are, I believe they... Um, defined by the Southern Poverty Law Centre in the States as a, as a hate group. Uh, and they have an, a UK slash international arm called the Alliance Defending Freedom International. So, um, so yeah, so that, that kind of rang more alarm bells. Um, and we just kind of started putting, putting a plan together as to kind of what we needed to ask, what we needed to ask, where we needed to ask it. What kind of things did we want to look at? So all, all your freedom of information requests have gone into EHRC directly, have they? They have, yes. Yeah. Um, what, what kind of questions were you asking? Dates when 
people, you know, who, who have they met? When have they met people? What information was provided um, for board meetings and, and things like this? So and I'll, I'll cycle back around to that in a, in a second. Um, but yeah, basically we were formulating a plan as to what we needed to ask based on what we'd found. And some of the things we'd found were, for example, um, there was a board meeting that was, or board briefing rather, that was uh, scheduled for the 9th of February of 2021. And this briefing was specifically around transgender issues. That was uh, okay. As part of that, we found that there was in existence something called a transgender issues paper that was associated with it and these board briefing materials. Um, so that was that kind of timeline. And we were just about to kind of start asking some questions in and around that. So I think this brings us about mid-June, early mid-June 2021, when we had a leak of information that had apparently been all obtained under Freedom of Information Act. So this is somebody else putting in requests. Yeah. Uh, and it was a huge, huge body of information um, from an anonymous source um, who asked to be protected. So we obviously um, have abided by that all the way through. We're still in contact with them, but you know they, they are completely anonymous. And that just kind of blew us away. It took us about two or three weeks to actually go through it all because there were I think about 60, 70, 75 pages worth of information to go through. It was that extensive. And it, and it all tied back to communications around this board briefing, who they've been talking to, um, various cases that have been going on, such as the, the ONS um, census intervention from the trans-hostile side, um, who they've been talking to with regards to the board briefing, meetings, things like this. And we kind of just started collating points of information from that as to this does not look like a particularly good picture. So going back to this board briefing, for example, it became fairly clear in, in short order that there was a bias in the number and types of groups that were asked to provide information for this board briefing. Can I just interrupt that? When, when you say numbers of groups, so th this meeting that was taking place, it was the EHRC inviting other organisations into that meeting as well? What, what they did was they invited a number of other organisations to present them with a video or information um, presenting their position on transgender people and transgender rights in the UK. Right. And of the groups that were asked, uh, I believe one of them was Women's Place UK, one of them was LGB Alliance, and one of them was Stonewall. We think there may have been a third group involved, a fourth group involved rather, um, but we're trying to determine that at the moment because if that's the case, then the HRC haven't actually supplied us with all the information that we actually asked for in freedom of information request. Um, but basically we had to build this plan of action of verifying all of this information for, you know, that we'd been leaked. So this, this was kind of a part of it. And we, we corroborated a very, very, very big chunk of it. Um, 
so yeah, coming back to this board briefing, you know, it was they they asked these groups, um, Women's Place UK didn't provide a video but asked for their submission to the um the gra inquiry run by the women and equality select committee to be used um as text uh, lgb alliance submitted a video which is available on steph's place we made that publicly available yeah um which um as you can see if you've you've viewed it is um doesn't make for pleasant viewing and is in my opinion chock full of misinformation and hyperbole and is little more than a three-minute rent against Stonewall, frankly, in my opinion. So those, those two organisations that you just mentioned, just excluding Stonewall for a minute, their history around trans issues is, is blatantly anti-trans from my personal perspective, yeah. from what I've seen, from what I know. If we're being polite, we could call it problematic, but yeah, it is distinctly anti-trans, massively anti-trans in bias, and yeah, that was just, you know, here we have the EHRC board asking two completely anti-trans groups for views on trans rights and trans people in the UK and no trans organisations at all. There was one of the questions we asked was... Stonewall being not specifically a trans organisation. No, just a general LGBT organisation. Yeah. Right, so... Some of the well-known trans organisations, such as Trans in the City, Gendered Intelligence, none of those were invited. No, Mermaids, Transactual, none of those were asked to make submissions on trans rights in the UK. So straight away in this board briefing, we have... So basically no, no transgender voice in the media. No, tra no trans voices at all. So a two-to-one to possibly three-to-one bias in terms of trans hostile views straight away and then curiously a month later they dropped stonewall so funny that isn't it it is yeah and yeah so it took us a long while to kind of get some more information out of of what actually was included in this board briefing uh, and what other papers and info was and, and again that's all available actually on the the public information uh, in the the evidence that we've made publicly in, uh, available um a lot of it was kind of fluff some of it was stating the current legal position but there were a couple of bits within there that were kind of quite alarming as well so all the all the all the responses to your requests all that information is available on Steph's Place website? It is, yeah. Okay. And the the anonymous information you received, the contents of that was the original request plus everything they received? Uh, basically, it was everything, yeah, everything, well, everything that they received. They didn't provide us with their original request, but it was everything they received. Based on their requests. Put yes. In. So all this, all this evidence has come from EHRC themselves? It has, yeah. Yeah, just wanted to make that point. Yeah, so, you know, everything has come from the EHRC. And, you know, we, we were quite careful. You know, this is, this is why it took a long while for some of this information to come out for us, because we had to double-check, verify, cross-check to make sure that it was valid. You know, we weren't going to be taken in by something that was potentially false and defamatory. Yeah, so in, in addition to that, you've done additional checks to verify yeah. the information. Yeah. yeah, and we got the same information back. So, you know, we, we did more targeted 
kind of checks and information on on, on requests on, on that kind of thing so so yeah so within within this whole body of information that we got was as we said evidence of collusion and working directly with a number of trans hostile groups bias in terms of information provided to the uh, the board briefing um potentially evidence of working with some of these groups to scupper the schools transgender to schools guidance yeah so ju just to kind of summarize your kind of areas of concern um i think what you've produced is a is a bit of a guide as to around what you found based on your foi yeah requests and you've got in there conflicts of interest collusion ehrc board member alistair henderson so you've got information around that there's a conflict of interest, EHRC Chair uh, Kishwar Falconer. Yep. Collusion, Transgender Schools Guidance, England and Wales. Yep. Collusion with LGB Alliance. Yep. Conflict of interest, Free Speech Union, Gender Critical Academics, Academic Freedom. Yep. And also other trans hostile activities by the EHRC. So you've got evidence on all those kind of six areas all based on foi requests yeah fois and publicly available information yeah it's, i mean it's quite shocking to think that the ehrc which is the you know the equality and human rights commission for the uk is doing this kind of thing behind our backs oh it's absolutely appalling it's absolutely it's, it, not only is it shocking it's terrifying and yeah makes you wonder you know what exactly is behind all this yeah you know, it goes up to liz truss and beyond you know she is the one who appointed you know th this chair uh, so I i'm really curious as to know you know what's behind it i don't know I, you've discovered what you have you, you've you kind of you've got these areas concerned but it for me it, it, it probably goes a lot deeper than we than we know yeah, well, I, I think you know that that kind of kind of uh, brings us quite nicely into some of the work Ben Hunt over at Vice has done. Because yeah, so how did how did Ben Hunt get involved? Oh, <laughs> that's a kind of he is um, Vice News senior journalist, isn't he? He is, yeah. For Vice World News. Vice World News, yeah. And the, he has put out several articles based on your your evidence and his. And his own work, yes. Um, and there is more to come, believe it or not. Um, can't do any spoilers, but there is more to come. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a story in and of itself, because we tried to get a number. We, we put the first version of this dossier together. Um, I think it was kind of initially ready by September, if memory serves me, the first version. And we kind of all looked at it ourselves within Steph's place, within the, the co-editors group. And we was like, what the hell do we do with this? Yeah. Because potentially it's massively defamatory if we publish it on our own. Um, it needs a bigger voice. It needs a much bigger voice. So Steph kind of took on the mantle of this, this bit um, and tried to get a number of media organisations interested she talked to people left, right, and centre. Um, we started working with um, another fairly well-known person on Twitter who's uh, who's very active as, as an ally. 
um, who has lots of connections. Um, I don't want to name them because obviously I've not agreed with them that we're going to talk yeah. about them. Yeah. Um, they jumped in and started helping us and, and started trying to build interest with other media organisations and other organisations to, to get us some help in getting this information out there. And we had absolutely zero interest. And this is from main, mainstream media? This is from mainstream and not quite so mainstream, yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't know personally exactly who Steph talked to but and, and who our other contact talked to but my understanding is is that we're a, a number of mainstream media organizations and not so mainstream media organizations and nobody wanted to touch it with a barge pole weren't even interested we put out a summary document of what we'd found so without the the detail and not not even one email back saying thanks but no thanks yeah, so I guess Ben Ben Hunt was kind of the only outlet available to you. Yeah, Ben was kind of at, at the, this point. So I think we was this was about mid October there, if memory serves me. Um, may even been kind of early November. I think it was about mid October, beginning mid October. Um, he was basically the only one that went. Actually, yeah, I'll have a look at it. So. Steph discussed it with him. We got the, the dossier over to him. And the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> yeah, so what, what kind of investigations was Ben doing? Um, well, he actually kept fairly quiet, to be honest, for, for a bit. We chased him a number of times for information and sort of tried to find out what was going on because we were deeply concerned that actually they weren't going to run with it or, or kind of deal with it as, as they kind of looked at and agreed. Um, but I think kind of by end of December, Steph and I and, and our contact had all kind of reached the end of our tether and we'd gone, we basically went, look, if you're not going to do anything with it, we're publishing and we're going to publish after Christmas. And Ben came back to us at that point and went, please don't, you're going to jeopardise everything I've worked towards. And we had a massive update from him. And... It turns out, as you've seen in the articles, he was basically building relationships with, with whistleblowers uh, within the EHRC uh, and with people who had recently left the EHRC. Yeah, so, so just to recap, what, what are the articles that Ben has put out so far? I think there's been three or four of them. Yeah, there's, there's been three three or four. I think it's four now, actually. Um, let me tell you, I've got it all on the front page. Everything we've got available is on the front page of Steph's Place Co. UK. We, we've kind of used it as a, a holding area for all the information we've found. So all these things we're talking about, are, you know, you can go and read about the story. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, we need to do a bit of an update still to, to catch up on the last week or so because it's, it's moving so quickly. Um, but, yeah, Vice put out three articles um, the first on the 2nd of February 2022, which, uh, which was titled Britain's Equalities Watchdog Met Privately with Anti-Trans Groups. The second, a few days later on the 4th, was staff are quitting Britain's Equality Watchdog due to uh, the EHRC due to transphobia. And on the 10th, there was uh, leaked EHRC guidance reveals plans to exclude most trans people from bathrooms. And then the latest one, uh, which I think came out earlier this week was around the dropping of transgender schools guidance for, yes. for schools. Yeah. And prior, prior to this, there was a couple of stories 
around the EHRC, you know, in relation to GRA Reform Scotland. Yeah. And also um, the other one. The conversion therapy bank. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously. It sent out, I don't know what it was, letters or around those to both those organizations, which again, seemed to be very anti-trans themed. Yeah, I mean, again, we've got those on the on 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 the website on Steph's place. Um, but yeah, the the first one was basically um, the HRC trying to get Scotland to stop their GRA reform. Yeah, well, the good news is it's going ahead next week. So yeah, yeah so fingers crossed. You know that will uh, that will all push through. The interesting thing with that as well is I think it's come out quite recently that the Scottish Human Rights Commission once. Um, did not approve the EHRC um, commenting on this. So that, you know, it's it's a complete farce, really, isn't it? I mean... Oh, absolutely. Um, it, you know, the, the, the English sort of... English. Um, Organisation completely trying to steamroll over the Scottish um, organisation. And thankfully, the Scots seem to have a lot more sense than they do down here. But, yeah... Yeah, um, I mean, if, 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 if we're going to phrase it correctly, what we've got is the English EHRC are trying to get involved in what are devolved legislative affairs in Scotland. Yeah. They're out of their remit. And as you've quite rightly stated, Violet, it's um, just yesterday, the Scottish equivalent have basically gone, uh, no, go away. So, yeah, they put them back, they put them back in their box. Yeah, big time. And there was a, uh, is it correct as well? Has there been a judicial review or some sort of um, legal challenge to the census in Scotland as well, similarly to how the English um, and Welsh um, census yeah. was attacked last year? Um, yeah. Attacking the inclusion of transgender people in the, well, in, in, um, including us if we have our passport changed instead of our birth certificates. Yeah, basically trying to, force trans people to out themselves or misgender themselves by recording uh, making sex being recorded at birth effectively um and forcing us to to declare that and effectively out ourselves you know as you've quite rightly stated they tried that in england and the ons basically rolled over and just went now we're not we're not even going to challenge it they just withdrew the guidance but in scotland they again quite rightly went uh, no this is how we're doing it. Uh, and they tried to appeal. And again, I think it was either yesterday or the day before, the um, the appeal was rejected. So yeah, there's, there's pretty significant efforts to, well, I guess quite a successful effort to um, intervene with transgender people in England. Um, and they're trying to continue that trend in Scotland. And it seems like hopefully they've been failing so far at yeah. least. Yeah, it, it would appear to be that case, so which gives us a ray of hope. Yeah, so so just before we move on to the next kind of area that we were going to talk about, which is kind of the implications of all this, I was just wondering, Jane, um, do you have any questions around what you've heard so far in relation to, you know, the press and, uh, you know, some of these FOI kind of requests that have gone in, what we, you know, what we've discussed so far? Do you have anything you want to add? Not a question so much as a, an observation, which is next to nothing about this surprises me. Um, the UK press, or particularly the London-based national media, has proven itself completely incurious 
as to what is happening to trans people. The slightest story which places trans people in a bad light will get repeated ad nauseam. And major stories that are of concern to trans people are just ignored. And this happens over and over and over again. And things like uh, the, t the Times producing hundreds of trans-related stories in a year, the Times being responsible for the chest-feeding story. Now, that pretty much originated in the Times. It may have originated in another newspaper, but it kicked off in a major way with the Times. And it then echoed around the world. So things like the New York Times repeated the Times claim that the some midwives organization was trying to stop people from saying breastfeeding. About nine months, 10, 12 months later, the somewhat toothless press watchdog Ipso actually told the Times that was not true. And the Times has produced a correction. But that's a year later. So all the damage, all the articles, that correction doesn't change any of the other articles. So there are hundreds of thousands of people out there who see that, who believe this particular untruth about trans people. And it makes no difference. So we are, I, I have to say, it's an ongoing discussion within Transmedia Watching with other organisations. But we've pretty much given up on most of the UK press. They are not interested in reporting truthfully or uh, comprehensively about what is happening to trans people in the UK. What do you, what do you think is behind that? Um, hmm, good question. We think it's partly because of a very, very small ownership and control base. If you look at the British press, the national media, and I stress it's national media, there is fewer than half a dozen people own those media. And those people are almost all on the right or quite to the right politically. There is a question about the influence of Russian money, and it does seem to be part and parcel of the same thing. In other words, if you draw back, you see a much bigger pattern in which this Conservative Party and this government is very interested in destabilising, I think, a post-war consensus in which you had broadly liberal values, and you could swap Labour appointees and Tory appointees to public bodies like the EHRC, and you'd get a good candidate who is a little bit to the left or a bit to the right. The Tories are putting out ideological candidates. They have, um, if you go back to the fall of Kids Company, that seemed to be a pincer movement with public... Um, moral panic being created and misinformation, sensationalist misinformation that was put together by the press. And that model worked insofar as a couple of years later, Kids Company were exonerated of all wrongdoing, but it was too late. They were bankrupt. They had shut down. And I think we're seeing a similar thing applied to Stonewall now. It doesn't matter, but a great deal of what is being thrown at Stonewall is untrue. It has an impact on funding, it has an impact on various things, and that impact slowly undermines Stonewall. So what I think we're seeing is a big 
I hesitate to say conspiracy because I'm not a great believer in conspiracy. I tend to believe in cock up more than conspiracy. But we're seeing something quite big and about rolling back um, a liberal consensus and a liberal adherence to human rights. And it seems to be clustered around a series of things like Brexit, like old-fashioned values, like blitz spirit, all that sort of stuff. And it's absolute nonsense. I mean, what did we have yesterday? We had Nadine Doris saying we shouldn't um, clamp down on RT because freedom of speech. And I think we had Jacob Rees, was it Jacob Rees-Mogg saying, let's consider going back to imperial measures. I mean, this is just total nonsense. And it's, it almost feels like trolling the British people. I don't get it. But it does, it wouldn't surprise me if at some level there wasn't Russian money behind a lot of this. And do you believe there's collusion between the government and media? You know, in the, in, in the way they report these some of these stories? Yes. Um, collusion, in a sense, it's just the whole issue of you talk to your mates. Although some of the collusion might be more serious than other. So certainly there was the allegation, uh, I think published by Vice, Claire may confirm this, that um, the EHRC chair had the phone number for um, the founder of Fair Play for Women. Yeah, correct. Okay. Well, that's a level of access that is not given to anybody else. Um, is it collusion? Yeah, collusion might be an ugly word. It's, it's something. And then you see what was going on in Scotland. And the story in Scotland seems to me to be much more interesting you see the EHRC stepping up to do something in Scotland. It's intervened to say, don't pass gender recognition because we shouldn't have England and Scotland at odds on such a fundamental issue. And it also intervened to say, don't have a different view on census data to what's going on in England. As yesterday made clear, the Scottish HRC was not impressed by that because the SHRC is not the EHRC and the two bodies are distinct and they have different areas of responsibility. But what struck me as very interesting, and I'm not going to say collusion because someone will sue me, I will just say interesting, that Fair Play for Women, the body that seems to be on friendly phone call terms, best mate, shall we say, with the Baroness, was the body bringing the court action in respect of the census data. What's that? I would ask, I would throw this one over to your listeners. Is that collusion? Is that fair play for women acting as a proxy? Is it just a great big coincidence? I don't know. Well, it's interesting as well, because the HRC intervenes um, in the Maya Forstater case as well. So they have a very significant legacy, like a, a very significant track records of pro-gender um, critical interventions, which is interesting for a organization that's supposed to represent everyone's rights, not necessarily just one group. 
I think there may be something much bigger, and this is moving outside the press area. There may be something bigger going on here. Um, I've sometimes likened it to the politics of the unruly teenager. When someone says, could you please clean your room? I don't want to clean my room. Could you not talk to your grandmother like that? You're, you're taking away my free speech. And there seems to be an element within the British public that doesn't want to be told. They don't want to be told to wear masks. They don't want to be told to have vaccines. And they don't want to be told what they're allowed to say. Now, that is being represented, misrepresented, as a return to some sort of historic British freedoms. It's not. We have always balanced these things. So to go back to free speech, which Nadine Doris was talking about yesterday in respect of RT, there have always been international accords, international agreements, but propaganda in a time of war, okay, we are not at war right now with Russia, but there is a war going on, that propaganda, uh, particularly at a state level, is and can be a criminal offence. And let's face it, in the last war, um, we decided at the end of it that we would hang Joyce. Uh, that, that, that's um, William Joyce. No other Joyce's were hung. Um, that because during the war, uh, William Joyce broadcast into this country under the, I suppose, what the username of Lord Haw Haw, and uh, that was propaganda. I, I could almost imagine some Twitter types nowadays, if that happened, going, but free speech. It was his free speech to go onto the radio and say that, um, that Hitler's a nice chap, but circumstances change. So there does seem to be an element of the public that doesn't want to be told anything. That to me feels immature, yet there is some political mileage in pandering to these people. And it also impacts upon equalities because the whole of the equalities agenda is about saying that where you have disadvantaged minorities, some degree of accommodation must be made. If you have somebody who has a disability, trains must be prepared to put out ramps for them, and that might delay the train a little bit. And I have seen on some Facebook forums people going, no, 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 they should be treated equally, which means I don't get a ramp to go on a train, so they shouldn't get a ramp to go on a train, that sort of thing. So there's a great deal of intolerance dressed up as freedom. It's interesting, though, because I think this reminds me a lot of this sort of cultural war concepts. And I, it occurs to me, you know, what's the chicken and what's the egg here? You know, we can either go, oh, well, there's a lot of sort of self-centered sentiment in the population. But we can also look and go, well, who is telling them that there is anything to be opposed to in the first place. So if we refocus the conversation back on trans people, we see a lot of reporting from various sources talking about how, you know, take it back to Canada and Jordan Peterson, where he was telling people that they were going to be arrested for misgendering someone or dead naming someone, um, which was a complete lie. Um, but what it was 
doing was it was rhetorically you know trying to make um trans people seem censorious and and incredible amounts of this sort of rhetoric has been used in this country as well and then well people tend to believe what they read at least to some degree um so i guess the question we can ask is is why are they stoking these sentiments in the first place you're absolutely right it it's it's incredibly old um it's the same set of people um and i remember in in the 80s it's the 80s it was politically political correctness gone mad you you're not even allowed to say x nowadays and of course in the process of saying you're not allowed to say x they would say x and we are seeing again courtesy of the media all these silenced people the silenced kathleen stock the silenced jk rowling the silenced judy bindle um they make a hell of a lot of noise for silenced people and it is interesting the linkage across i was looking today at rt and violet you have joined me in doing work with transmedia watch looking at who is writing what about trans people rt has gone interestingly quiet recently i don't know if today they've been a bit noisier but it's i don't think they've produced a pro-trans view in at least two or three years but they have taken they're certainly a mainstay of writings by gender criticals uh, i've come across lots and lots of op-eds there that are talking about defending kathleen stock defending judy bindle defending jk rowling um it is amazing what a hard-on um rt has got for gender criticals yes and i mean and interestingly they share that um appreciation with um fox news for example <laughs> suddenly these right-wing outlets are, are, are very feminist I, I wonder why in this instance they're so enthusiastic about protecting women when otherwise they don't seem to be very interested in talking about it it's, it's an odd odd situation you know just getting back to the HRC situation. Um, what I what I would like to talk about next is really what what do we think the implications are for some of the things that we've discussed and some of the things you've discovered around the EHRC, Claire. I mean, we've already seen organisations like Stonewall and um, Good Law Projects making moves to have the HRC downgraded. I mean, that's one potential. Um, outcome of all this what what else do you, do we think you know are the implications of what's going on well i mean the i mean obviously it's it's difficult to say because it's such a complex and um convoluted situation but i think it's something um you know this, this subversion of the role of the ehrc in protecting minorities uh you know we've got clear examples of them working against minorities. You know, we've got examples of them working against um, disabled people, for example. We've got examples of them propping up the government on their uh, their failed sewer report and saying that racism doesn't exist in the UK. You know, and that was all kind of, they've gone down the same road as the government on both of those issues. Um, effectively, mar further marginalising 
race relations and disability relations in this country. And now we're seeing them doing it much more blatantly with trans people. And who's right to up for, for grabs next is, is probably the best way to put it because they've, they've come for us, they've come for disabled people, they've come for, for um, ethnic minorities. Um, what's left? What's next? Is it going to be women's rights? Is it going to be abortion? Is it going to be contraception? Are we seeing a, a move back to a religious hegemony um, based around faith? You know, these, these are scary directions. I mean, Claire, you could probably say more on this than me, but both of these, two of the issues you mentioned have come up already, and they do seem to be based around faith organizations where some of the people involved in Bell versus Tavistock were also involved in taking away um, bodily autonomy for reproductive rights. And, um, and also in the conversion therapy where the EHRC has been um, intervening saying that transgender people should not be protected against conversion therapy, but that gay and lesbian people should be. Um, and this seems to be argued on the basis of faith um, and belief to a significant degree, if not exclusively. Um, so, you know, this is, well, it, it speaks to potentially a, a bias there. Yeah, and, and I agree with you. And, and, you know, that was one of the things that originally got me interested in looking at what was going on within the HRC, because... You know, when we, we go back and look at Bell versus Tavistock, you know, yes, on the face of it, it was attack on, on trans healthcare for young people. Um, but Paul Conrath, who was like kind of the, the, the lead lawyer prosecuting the whole thing, quite blatantly came out afterwards and clearly stated that it was actually an attack on Gillick competence. And as we know, Gillick competence is one of the fundamental factors that underlines both abortion rights and um, contraceptive rights and access to contraception, both of which are fundamental women's rights. So, you know, if we take that back, we have an EHRC board member working against three areas of rights in the UK and carrying on being allowed to practice as a board member within the EHRC by the rest of the board. How is that morally and ethically correct? It's not. It, it, it's detailed quite clearly in the HRC guidance around conflicts of interest that they should be recused from the, um, from the situation completely and shouldn't take part unless allowed to do so. Yeah, and I believe, I'm not sure if we've covered it and maybe we did, and I'm just, but just for the listeners in case they didn't catch. Um, one of the members um, of the EHRC um, was declared their um, conflict of interest on trans issues because of their involvement in the Bell versus Tavistock case. And then they were allowed to continue um, con contributing to the meeting about transgender rights, which, as it sounds like you're laying out, is in contravention yeah. of the way that they're supposed to avoid conflicts of interest in the past place. Yeah, yeah, you know, their, their, their rules around conflict of interest are quite clear. And, you know, kind of as I said, it's um, they can declare these conflicts, which is right. That's the right thing to do. And, and this board member did, which is good. 
but the board on multiple occasions then allowed them to continue despite this conflict of interest existing. And yeah, we're not talking, you know, a small conflict of interest here. We're talking about a fundamental disagreement on people's rights. It's morally and ethically wrong, in my opinion. And it shouldn't be allowed. And this is not the only example we have. Yeah. And I t- I wonder as well. One of the things that occurs to me about this issue with the HRC, and it, we we brought it up with um Faulkner talking in the Times and sort of speaking on this issue of believing whether trans people are sort of trans in the first place, really, because if your philosophical belief is that we are whatever we were assigned at birth, well, that's sort of a designation of cisness or not transness, um, sort of by default. Now, I think this is quite interesting because one of the things that worries me, and I wonder if anyone else has thoughts on this, is that it almost feels like the HRC is trying to take a position of, we don't really, we're skeptical, maybe let's say about whether trans people are actually a group. <laughs> um, and if we just, you know, um, set out all of our guidance and discuss these issues as though trans people aren't a distinct group, then we can sort of wish away the need to balance the rights and actually balance the rights of trans people and non-trans people. Um, and by way of just simply treating trans people as though we weren't trans. Yeah, I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head there completely. It, it, it seems to be this view that who we are is very superficial. It's, it's, it's this view that, you know, I think it comes back to the old diagnostic way of thinking about things within within um, mental health in that, you know, it's this view that we are supposedly mentally ill and delusional and things like that. It's just a complete buy-in to, you know, actually we're faking it in some way, shape or form. Um, and I think the way you've put it really just kind of sums it up. It's this this position of non-belief that we are who we say we are. And then we also need to talk about some of the, you know, some of the effects of all this on the, uh, you know, the trans community and beyond. There's there's a lot of people out there who are quite upset about what's happened and are feeling very vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. And me included, to be perfectly honest, it's, it's horrendously, horrifically frightening. Yeah, you know, but you're, we've, you're looking to, towards EHRC to support you and your rights, and yet all this is going on. You know, it's it's just it's awful. Yeah, yeah. The the body that is there that is supposed to protect who we are and the rights that we have. I mean, let let's be honest. The EHRC have not been particularly um, dynamic when it comes to trans rights, even from inception. You know, that, that's kind of being charitable. We've always been a back burner issue, don't really want to deal with this kind of thing. But in my opinion, what we've kind of seen of late in the last year or two is just a complete subversion of what their actual purpose is. And that should be scary for everybody who relies on them for protection of rights in the UK, not just trans people. Um, but we're just the ones in the firing line currently. Uh, and with that, um, culture war wedge issue that provides them with the ability and the excuse and, and the means to chip away at other groups' rights. 
So, so what would you say to the trans non-binary community who may be listening to this podcast, you know, to, you know, support them, reassure them? Yeah. Um, what I would say is we are, there are a number of members within the community, within community groups, working individually, who are trying our best to bring this information to light, to expose what's going on and to fight against it. Um, don't sit there and feel uh, helpless. Don't sit there and feel like you're not empowered. Get involved. Write to your MPs. Make noise. Get involved in your local community and be visible. You know, if we're there, they want to push us back in the closet. They want to make sure that we cannot participate in society. And we've got to be out there louder, prouder, and more obvious than ever before to counter it. And not don't be afraid to talk about trans issues. And if people are talking crap, tell them they're talking crap. Yes, absolutely agree. Violet, do you have anything to add to that? Well, no, yeah, I, I, I think it's... It's important just to say that we shouldn't panic as well. Like I, I agree yeah. with everything that Claire yeah. says, and I, I, I'll also just shout on an emotional level. You know, when I saw this news has actually broken, and I, um, you know, it, it's it is very painful. I think on a self care level, I think as as a community, we need to support each other, and we need to be able to feel the difficulty with this. And the news cycle is very hard at the moment, where there's kind of constantly things coming out and that's interesting. And, and maybe we could consider that that might be a strategy of theirs to maybe wear us down a little bit. So we, I think need to step back, especially as trans people ourselves and look after ourselves because it's very easy to burn out with these things. And then as, as Claire said, you know, we can go through and look at what we can do. So if we've got an MP that might be supportive absolutely contact them um get involved with charities and community groups to sort of build up power i think the basic the basic message here is that these you know the anti-trans sort of sentiment that's going around is doomed to fail there's there's no success there they have no success criteria that is has any reality to it because we know we're not going anywhere you know that this problem of trans people isn't going anywhere and we know that public sentiment with younger generations is just getting better and better yeah so yeah. the long term for us is it, it is is good yeah realistically what we have to do is just hold kind of hold firm and 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 yeah. uh, and just not let them pull down our mood like our sort of our senses of um comforts and and, and also like as a final thing you know it is it's worth remind, reminding ourselves that most people most cis people in this country most cis people on this planet have no idea about these things and that's very negative because they don't know how much we're under attack and they don't help us because they don't know how much we we're being targeted and that's very negative on a political level but it's very important for us to remember if we get ourselves isolated it can feel very much like everyone's against trans people and we won't be accepted and we won't be able to have a fulfilling life. You know, I, I've had those fears. Um, and I think that's just not true. You know, when we go out there and we just live our lives as openly as trans people, you know, the vast, vast majority of people 
actually do support us and aren't aren't really that worried about trans people in the first place yeah. which sort of makes sense because we're not that different you know it's not that big of a deal um so i would encourage people to you know go out and find that make those connections with the community um because that's the biggest disprover of of all of these of all of these just horrible um sort of anti-trans um yeah. campaigning that, that that is going on at the moment it, it it, it, I think it makes us feel isolated. Um, so we need to make efforts to to not let ourselves be isolated in the first place. Yeah, and we have some great organizations, you know, doing this amazing work, such as Steph's Place, FGen, Trans yeah. in the City, you know, Transmedia Watch. You know, yeah, like you know, the list if, goes on and on. If people haven't yeah. already, like meet trans people in your local area and just like hang out. Like I think that's one of the most amazing things as well. As I, I can speak as well. Like personally, it's very stressful when I've got my family reading the Guardian and BBC, and they're reading all these things, and we've got the HRC saying that we don't exist and all this sort of stuff. That's very stressful. Um, but so if you can meet other trans people and then just be able to talk about this and not have to worry about like censoring yourself yeah. and you can just talk freely about these issues, that's very helpful. I would, I would big recommend. There's some great kind of peer to peer organizations out there for trans people, you know, just for socializing. I mean, there's loads of those. I think, um, yeah, I find those very supportive. So I think we've, we've kind of come to the end of our discussion there. Um, I'd just like to thank thank you, Jane, for coming on and having a chat with us. And uh, Claire, thank you too. It's been really interesting. Uh, yeah, thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, and Violet, would you have any final comments you'd like to make? Um, no, well, thank you everyone for listening. Um, if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and maybe give us a positive review if you really liked us. Um, and thank you so much for listening. And I hope um, that you'll listen again. <laughs> yeah, the, the podcast is, is available on Captivate and all the major podcast um, platforms. So yeah, thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you.